that other side of Jesus. Lots of contrast in life. And I think the way that you view Jesus has all sorts of implications for the way you live life. You probably grew up with a certain image of him in your mind. That image was created by lots of different factors. Your early teaching on Jesus, if you had some, vacation Bible school, going to Sunday school, at church, sermons that you heard, lessons your parents taught you, evening devotionals perhaps. That image of Jesus in your mind has been shaped by lots of different things, I'm guessing. Sometimes we can kind of get keyed in on one image of him, though, I think. And, we, and maybe we don't see him as he truly is. We don't see him from those multifaceted viewpoints as we were talking about earlier. That other, that other side of Jesus. I read an article with that title. Uh, Glenn Stanton is the fellow's name. I don't know him. It's on firstthings.com, which I read periodically. And I ran across the article. He actually published it in February, and it really grabbed me. You know, it's this article that I took this title from and, and really got the idea from. And in the article, Stanton talks about several different things, many of which I'm not going to talk about today. But, I'm, but I thought, you know, I think this is something that the church needs to hear, this idea. So I'm going to talk to you about it today. In fact, this is going to be an introduction to a short series of three to four lessons on that other side of Jesus. Today, we're, going to, we're not going to key in so much on Revelation 1. We'll, we'll look at Revelation 1, but we're not going to stop and really dive into the text as we normally do on Sunday mornings here. We will do that in future weeks, but not today so much. As I want this to be kind of an introduction to this image of Jesus, that other side of Jesus. See, because I think that it's easy for, for, for me as a preacher, as you know, someone who presents regularly to this church to get in a rut, you know, and, and, and to present the same image of him, one that I'm comfortable with, one that I like, one that I like preaching about because I know people like to hear about it, and maybe avoiding certain topics that I'm afraid to, or at least that I think maybe people won't be as... I don't know, as welcoming or as excited about or for whatever reason. So I think there's a need for this, and I want to do it for the next um, few weeks. Well, next week, Sunday morning, Lord willing, we're going to have Vacation Bible School leading up to um, Sunday, and then I'll, I'm going to preach a sermon that has to do with a VBS theme. But during the rest of July and then on into the first couple of Sundays in August, perhaps, we're going to explore this theme in some more detail, thinking about that other side of Jesus. So here are the two sides of Jesus. We're going to call this first one, I think Stanton actually used this expression. We're going to call this first side of Jesus the amazing grace Jesus. Everybody loves amazing grace Jesus, right? I like preaching about amazing grace Jesus. I really do. And, and I think it needs to be preached about. It needs to be talked about. And some of you grew up in churches, maybe, or in home environments or whatever, but you grew up in places where you didn't hear about amazing grace Jesus a whole lot. You heard about the second kind of Jesus that we're going to talk about, we're going to emphasize for the next few weeks. Maybe you didn't hear a whole lot about Amazing Grace Jesus growing up. And you probably need to hear about him a lot. Uh, but we love, most people, and I think our culture loves this, in fact. And this is why I think this, there's, there's got to be some tension here for us. 
I think our world today loves Amazing Grace Jesus. Even people who don't really like Christianity, they like this image of Jesus. And the one I'm talking about here, you know, you can go to a lot of different places in the New Testament and you, you can talk about it, many of which we've already studied in, in the past few years at, at this church, you know. You can go to those texts, which we did a few weeks ago, that text in the Gospel of Matthew where mamas and daddies are bringing their babies to Jesus. Don't you love that passage? We studied it a few weeks ago and talking about the emphasis here in our Bible classes and trying to get more folks involved in teaching and, and being, you know, involved in helping our kids. I love that image of Jesus. I mean, that's beautiful to me because I, I love to think about Jesus uh, and, and, you know, he's God. You know who he is, right? This is God. This is not just a man. Uh, he's, he's God. This is God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is, this is the one who sits on that great white throne from whose face the heavens and earth fled. That's how he's pictured in the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is God, right? And mamas and daddies are bringing their babies to Jesus. And, and, and you can almost picture this. You're handing their babies to Jesus, and Jesus is taking them. God is taking these little babies in his arm. I love that image, man. He's patting, patting them, rocking them, singing to them, praying over them, loving them. Isn't that beautiful? I think some people need to hear about that Jesus, that amazing grace Jesus. It's, and the disciples didn't like it much. You remember they tried to, they said, no, don't bother him. This is, he's important. Babies aren't important. Go take care of them yourself, you know. This is, this is God right here, whatever image they had of him at that point. This is somebody important, and you don't need to be bothering him. And Jesus got, I think he got angry with him and said, don't you dare keep these parents from bringing their, this is what the kingdom's like, guys. So I love that image of Jesus. Amazing grace, Jesus. I like how Jesus treated the, the, the marginalized, you know? How he, how he treated those on the periphery of society in his world. His world had lots of barriers, as ours does and as every society does. It had some, some kind of artificially created um, fences between different groups of people, and some of those were along gender lines, as every culture has had to one extent or another. We are maybe a little bit farther down the road of progress on not making some of these artificial distinctions about gender as his world did. And, and what I mean by that is they, they didn't treat women with any kind of respect many times, many different cultures. But in this first century world that, that Jesus lived in, there was, a, there was very much of a marginalizing, marginalizing of women, of, um, of treating them almost as, as objects or, or property. You know, they were... They were put on the periphery. They weren't invited to be in public places. They were, there was this um, division of the, of the sexes in public places. I mean, a, a lot of that went on, and there were different standards to which men and women were had as, held, especially in, you know, with, with acts of sexuality quite often. And, and so Jesus was willing to cross that. Don't you? I mean, that fits very well with our current society. I, I think it needs to be preached. We need to, we need to encourage our society to see that Jesus was someone who elevated the role of women. He wasn't somebody who pushed them to the side. Sometimes people think Christianity is, you know, is anti-women. Well, Jesus wasn't. And so you go to passages like John 4 where he went to that well at Jacob, Jacob's well on his way to Samaria. And he saw that woman who was a Samaritan. She was a woman and she was immoral. She had been married five times living with a sixth guy she wasn't married to. Remember that interaction he had with her? He talked to her like she was a person. Isn't that interesting? Talked to her like a human being. 
like she was just as important as the guys. That's how he treated her. She was amazed. She, was, she marveled. She said, are you, a, you know, a, a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan. She was the wrong race. She was the wrong gender. She was from the wrong background. All, this, all these things going against her. The disciples came back. You know, they had gone into the town to get some food, and they came back to Jesus, found him there talking to this woman, and, they, and it says they were amazed that he was talking to a woman. An amazing grace, Jesus. It's a beautiful image of Jesus who treated people as people. That role, that, that, that image of Jesus is portrayed in a lot of different stories. You've got John 8, 1 through 11, where some enemies of Christ trying to trip him up brought this woman caught in the very act of adultery, brought her to Jesus. Perhaps she was scantily clad still. Perhaps she was naked. I don't know, but she, they threw him at the feet of Jesus and said she ought to be stoned. That's what the law says. She ought to be caught in the very act of adultery. She needs to be killed, executed. That's what the law said. What do you say? Jesus was unwilling to play that game. Remember that story? Love that story. It's amazing grace, Jesus. He who was without sin among you, let him cast the first, what? You remember? You remember that story. Let him cast the first stone. They were embarrassed. They walked away, not knowing what to say to Jesus. That's the amazing grace, Jesus. To to carry the, the gender theme, even... Farther, you got Luke 7, the woman who came into the house where Jesus was eating this meal with Simon the Pharisee and other guests. They were lying down at the table eating their meal, and she came in, and she let her hair down. She started crying, doing all sorts of inappropriate things. Women weren't invited. She's crying and wiping his feet with her tears and anointing them with ointment and all this stuff, wiping them with her hair, all sorts of stuff that was very offensive to Simon the Pharisee going on. And Jesus said, Simon, she's the only one who really appreciates the significance of this moment. You don't even understand. That was what overall message to to Simon would. Do you see this woman? Amazing grace, Jesus. I love that image of him. You've got stories like Matthew 19, talking, continuing that idea of the marginalized. Matthew 19, uh, where he goes into the village, and you've got the short guy. Remember the short man? chief of the tax collectors. His name was Zacchaeus. He climbed up the tree to try to get a better picture of Jesus. And Jesus said, come down from that tree. I'm going to come to your house today. And so he goes to this house of this despised tax collector. Tax collectors were hated in first century Jewish society. And if anybody was hated more than tax collectors, it was their boss. And that's who Zacchaeus was. He was the chief of the tax collector. He was the one that others looked at in that city and they looked at his nice house and the money that he had and they knew where that money came from. It came from them and they resented it with every fiber of their being. And so Jesus went to the rich man's house and he loved him, you know, treated him as a human being. It wasn't just those who were marginalized because of mistakes they had made or because of gender or whatever. It was also those who had been marginalized maybe because of of Zacchaeus' choices or because of his lifestyle or whatever. Zacchaeus, he went to his house and he brought salvation to the house of Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector. Or you can go to Luke 15 and read those three stories where Jesus is portraying himself and God as these images. A shepherd who had a hundred sheep, he lost one and he dropped what he was doing and he went into the wilderness to find the one that had gone astray, the one that was lost, and he brought it back home and there was this great rejoicing. And Jesus is that shepherd who goes into the wilderness, you know, 
I love that image of amazing grace Jesus or the woman who had 10 coins. She lost one. She dropped it. She was doing, swept the house and went and found that coin. And there was rejoicing. Jesus is portrayed. God is portrayed by the, the vigilance and the love of that woman who went after that which was lost. And then you got the story of the man who had two sons and one of them was lost. And, and the son, the prodigal son, we call him came to himself while he was in the pig pen, began his journey home, had his rehearsed speech ready to go, and he got halfway through it. And the father, having run to meet him, fell on him, hugging him and kissing him, putting sandals on his feet and a robe around him, getting the party ready back home. And we love to talk about that father there as being this image of Jesus of God, this amazing grace who extends to all this love and compassion and acceptance and forgiveness. Love that. Or Luke 12, the story of the Good Samaritan. Again, crossing all sorts of boundaries there. The poor man, the man who was beaten and robbed, left for dead. And the priest came by and ignored him. The Levite came by and ignored him. These were the church officers, right? And then the despised half-breed, the Samaritan came by. And he went over to him and he fixed him up bound his wounds and put ointment on them and took him to the inn and cared for him and paid for his future care. And we see there Jesus, right? The Samaritan, this one who was willing to go out of his way to sacrifice himself for the good of those around him. We see that image of amazing grace, Jesus there. And we think, I love that. And my guess is these stories resonate with you. And they ought to resonate with us. They ought to. I'm not saying there's anything negative about them necessarily. And I think our culture can. And maybe we need to do a better job of presenting this image of Jesus to our world who has this negative view of Christianity that it's all about whatever it's all about, whatever they think it's all about. We need to help them to see that Jesus is beautiful. He is loving and he is... I mean, he draws you to himself because of this love and compassion. But if we stop there, you know, if we stop at these stories, then we haven't fully presented him, have we? And we don't really know him. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ones whom God chose to write these vivid portrayals of Jesus, they didn't stop there. They went beyond that. And this one we're going to call Hellfire Jesus. Does that name make you uncomfortable? Maybe it does. Maybe it should. I don't know. Hellfire Jesus. This is the image that our world doesn't like. And maybe increasingly this is the, this is the image that the church doesn't like. Influenced by our culture as we inevitably will be. Hellfire Jesus. You can go to a lot of different I'd encourage you to do this. Maybe you haven't done this in a while. Maybe you haven't ever done it. But go through and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just spend some time there. Just, just read them. And maybe you have a little notepad and a pen out. And when you think of something, a question or an observation, just write it down. I think if you spent a few months doing that, maybe read, read 15 minutes a day, you'll be surprised at how far you get. Just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and ask this question. What is Jesus like? What does he talk about? And what does he do? And what do you walk away after the end of every chapter? You think, okay, what did I learn about Jesus from this chapter? You'll learn a ton. And you'll read all those stories we just talked about. You'll read them all and you'll think, wow, I love that. 
so encouraging. Makes me want to love him more. Makes me want to be a more faithful child of God, you know? You'll, you'll walk away with all sorts of observations about Jesus and all those stories that we just read, but you're also going to read some other things. When you think about that other side of Jesus, the one we don't talk about as much, the one we're not as comfortable with, probably that image stimulates some different stories. Maybe you think of, I think there are a couple that are probably at the front of our minds right now when you think about Hellfire Jesus. Do you think about the time where he went into the temple and he, he made this whip and he ran the, got the animals out and he ran these people out of the temple and he says, do not make my father's house into a place of merchandise. Remember that story? Or maybe Matthew 23, the famous or infamous chapter. Woe unto you, <coughs> scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Eight times in Matthew 23. Absolutely let them have it. That's Matthew 23. That's Jesus. That's the same Jesus who held the babies in his lap. That's the same Jesus who welcomed the adulterous woman in John 8. That's the same Jesus who loved the tax collectors and the drunks and the marginalized. Same Jesus stood up in front of this group of people and said, you are going to hell because you do not understand the nature of the kingdom. That's the other side of Jesus, right? That's this, that's this other image of Jesus that scares us a little bit, that makes us uncomfortable, that makes us squirm in our pews a little bit, perhaps. That's Jesus, though. This Jesus we're, we're talking about here, he is the one who believed, in contrast to prevailing trends in our culture, he believed in the reality of sin, because he believed in an objective standard of right and wrong. And so he believed that there were things that you could objectively do that were sinful. And he wasn't afraid to call them what they were. He called people sinners. And he called what they did sin. He did this over and over and over again. It's not that we need to just kind of get rid of the amazing grace Jesus or we don't need to set these two images in contrast to one another as if they conflict, but rather we need to help them to let us, to, we need to let them help us shape, help shape this image of Jesus that is what he is. He believed in the reality of sin. He believed in the need for repentance. He believed in a real hell. And he talked more than anybody else about it. I don't know how that makes you feel but it ought to make us feel something because it's who he was. It's what he did. It's what he said. He believed in sin. He believed in repentance. He believed in a real hell. In Matthew 13, 40 through 42, we read words like this. Just as the weeds, this is the parable of the weeds or the parable of the tares. <clears throat> he says at the conclusion of this, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I don't know what you want to do with those verses. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can talk about the fiery furnace. You can talk about what Jesus said about hell. And there are all different kinds of perspectives on what Jesus meant by hell. 
and what exactly the place is, what it looks like, what it is. But we got to do something with these words. We don't just need to act like they're not there, right? He said this stuff. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Our culture says somehow you need to do away with negative images like this because they're not right or they're they're not, they don't draw people in, you know, they don't encourage people. To come. That's, that's how we're influenced perhaps by our world today is we just kind of ignore some of this stuff and act as if it's not there. Matthew 25, 41, at the end of that extended sermon in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, it's, it's where he talked about a lot of stuff. Talks about uh, second coming and it's coming a day. In fact, that's the theme that runs through it. It's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back. Talks about the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Remember that? Five were wise, five were foolish. Talks about the parable of the talents. Five talent, two talent, one talent man. And then he goes on in the last 16 verses of the chapter, verses 31 through 46 of Matthew 25, he talks about this judgment scene where the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him. He sits upon the throne of His glory, this, this image of Jesus. And before Him are gathered all the nations and he separates them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. To those on his right, he will say, come you blessed of my father and inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was in prison, you came to me. Sick and you visited me. You remember the image. And then he turns to those on his left. This is not as fun to talk about. Come, you blessed of my Father, to those on the right. Depart from me, you curse and everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Jesus talked about this stuff. He talked about it in vivid terms, uh, in, in, in language that was offensive, perhaps. It was, not perhaps. Leave the perhaps off of that. It was offensive language. It made people uncomfortable. And they killed him for it. They didn't like it much. In fact, they didn't like it so much that they wanted him dead. So you've got these images of Jesus. You've got John 9, 39, when Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus said that. In Luke 12, 49 through 53, he says this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You've got texts like this from the mouth of Jesus, the same mouth who said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more to the adulterous woman. The same mouth that said to the Sinful woman in the house of Simon, your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. This is the same Jesus. On one occasion he says this. On another occasion he says this. How do we reconcile this? In Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, Jesus responding to some questions that were going around in his culture about how do, how do, why do bad things happen? You know, why does this tower fall? and kill innocent people. And Jesus wasn't really interested, at that moment at least, in talking about why bad things happen to good people. He didn't really even answer their question. You know what he said? 
something like that happens, you need to remember, if you don't repent, you will perish just like they did. That's what he said. You'll perish just like they did. He didn't, just, he didn't explore the nuances of why this stuff happened. I mean, I think there is a good biblical answer for that. There, there are texts that address it, but he didn't address it then. He essentially just said, said it twice in case they missed it the first time, verses 3 and 5. I tell you, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. He said that twice in Luke 13. And then our text, Revelation 1, a couple of passages in Revelation. In fact, the one that Sean read for us at the beginning of worship is a bit of a just a bit of a representative sample of how Jesus is portrayed in the book of Revelation. I kind of get the impression John is overwhelmed by it. In fact, I think you see that a lot in Revelation. John is having these visions of Jesus and seeing him as he is. And maybe John, who was close to the Lord, I mean, he was one of the inner circle. He spent a lot of time with the Lord. And he... uh, John was the, you know, the, the beloved disciple. He was the one who talked about love all the time. I think if we knew John, we would love John, the Apostle John. I mean, we would be, man, you're such an encouraging guy. He talked about love a lot. And in the book of Revelation, you almost feel like John is just, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, he's kind of got that, because he sees this image of Jesus that will scare you half to death. That's what Revelation will do. Scare you half to death. Because the image of Jesus portrayed there is frightening. Swords coming out of his mouth. That brightness that you can't even look at. That image comes through the text we read in Revelation 1. Then this one in Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. <clears throat> what do we do with hellfire Jesus? What do we do with him? You know, the, there are different things we can do with him. We can... You ever, you ever heard of a guy named Marcion, by chance? If you, it's not, you won't read Marcion from Barnes & Noble, you know. Uh, it, He's, he's not a very popular writer these days. He was a second century Christian um, who was denounced as a heretic, and I think with good reason, because of what Marcion did with Jesus. Um, Marcion did a lot to shape early Christian theology because of what he was teaching, and they had to respond to him. What Marcion said is that you've got the Old Testament God and you've got the New Testament God. We don't like the Old Testament God much because the Old Testament God destroys cities and Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, he's a fire and brimstone God. We don't like that God. So everything in the New Testament that kind of reminds you of that God, just take it out of your Bible. It's not real. So Marcion had his second century. They didn't have a full, full-blown New Testament yet, but they had, they had a big part of it. And, and, and Marcion was... What he would do is he would take these New Testament documents, some stuff from Paul, and he didn't like James much at all. He didn't like Hebrews much at all because it had a lot of Old Testament in it. And he, he didn't really like Matthew much because Matthew has more Old Testament than the others. And so anyway, Marcion cut up his Bible. It's essentially what he did. He had his own little canon. Canon, 
like what you say is the Bible. That's, Marcion had his own canon. And that canon took a whole lot out of the New Testament because he didn't like it much. That was Old Testament God. And we just want New Testament God. So you can do, we can do what Marcion would do. And there's not a person sitting in this room today who wants to do that. Not literally. You, you're not going to encourage us to start cutting up our Bibles, right? We're, we're comfortable with 66 books. We have a hard time dealing with a little bit of it, but we're not wanting to cut it out, right? We don't want to get rid of the 39, first 39, nor do we want to get rid of the parts in the New Testament we don't like much. And there are parts that make us squirm. But maybe, maybe we might tend to gravitate toward a Marcionite view a little bit if we don't cut them out, but we just don't pay much attention to them. And it might be the same effect, right? It might be the same effect. We don't cut them out. We just don't read them. Or if we read them, we read them quickly. And if we read them quickly, we can more quickly get to the parts we like. And there's not a person in here that's not affected by that because we all are. We're all affected by it. We all do it to an extent because there are images of Jesus, images of the Lord we like and images of the Lord that we don't like. What do you do with that other side of Jesus? Well, you probably already know what we ought to do with that, and what we try to do with that. And that is we take them and we let them inform our view of him. We don't try to put them in contradiction to one another as Marcion did and said, you can't have the God of the Old Testament and the God who's portrayed in Jesus. You can't make them the same because they're different. We can't do that. Not if we view the Bible as, as we do. We can't do that. We can't set them in conflict to one another and say that they're two different gods. <coughs> so what do we do with them? We recognize that they are portrayals of the same God and they've got to shape our view of that God. And that the God, as we see in Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus said. And so when we see Jesus and we read what he said, we listen to him. And we let him shape us instead of our views shaping him. That's crucial for us to do. We don't serve a God of our choosing. We serve the God who is. We don't shape God and make him what we want him to be. But rather, he is what he is. And we submit to him as he is. This is, this is so so important for us as believers today. Because we all know people who shaped a God after their own liking, right? It happens all the time. You see it happening in matters of, of uh, you know, images, uh, ideas that people debate about in our culture today. And, and I think particularly of things like sexuality. And this is one of the fights that the church is going to be fighting. We're going to be talking about this for a long time to come, matters of sexuality, especially not, not only because it's going on in our culture and they're changing, changing views about sexuality, but also because they're creeping into churches now. And churches are starting to say that this traditional notion of a man and a woman is God's idea of marriage. Then into our churches, and so some churches today are starting to say, well, that's not really what God said. And so they take the Bible, this is, this is my view here, they take the Bible and shape it a little bit. And in so doing, they shape God. This is what God is like. And so the God 
that they serve, the God that they confess, the Jesus they confess, is not, is not the same as the God, the Jesus of the New Testament. That's one example, and, I, and I'm, if it sounds like I'm pointing fingers, I think those, those same fingers need to be pointed back at us because we're all guilty of this in some way, of taking the image of Jesus and shaping it a little bit into one that makes us very, very comfortable. Folks, if Jesus doesn't make you uncomfortable, you don't really know who Jesus is. Because it doesn't matter where you are on the theological spectrum. You know, these these words we use on the progressive liberal end of the spectrum or the conservative end of the spectrum, it doesn't matter where you fall on that, Jesus will offend you. (laughs) He will. He will rock your world. He will pull the rug out from under you if you let him. But we can get into this cocoon, this, this little box, and we can just talk about stuff that we like. And we can be comfortable. But if I read my Bible right, that is not who he is. In that article I referenced at the beginning of this, he had a couple of quotations that I thought were helpful. He said, the tender lamb of God is also a fierce lion. The lamb of the, you see this in Revelation, by the way, the lamb of the tribe of Judah is also that lion as he's pictured in Revelation. Stanton also says he regularly hurt folks' feelings and didn't apologize for it. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with amazing grace, Jesus? It may be that that image of Jesus makes us uncomfortable. We need to spend time thinking about it. It may be that hellfire Jesus makes us feel uncomfortable. And if so, we need to spend some time thinking about it. But a half Jesus is not Jesus. That's a distorted, watered-down image of Jesus that doesn't do us any good at all. A God who already agrees with us is not God at all. Because God, as he is, an infinite God, is going to challenge every culture and every perspective at different times in different ways. The importance of seeing more than half Jesus. We're going to look at some of those examples in future weeks. We're going to look at some of those times where Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, where he cleansed the temple, where he... He spoke things into people's lives that made them squirm, maybe even made them turn away and go the other way. We're going to look at some of those times. And the reason we do that is because, the reason I do it, is because I want our church family here not to be a church that follows half Jesus or just amazing grace Jesus, just health our Jesus. I want us to be a church that has a view of him that is well-shaped and well-formed a multifaceted view of an infinite God, and he will challenge us. If you're not a Christian this morning, the reason we're here is, one of the reasons we're here is to give folks an opportunity to come to Jesus Christ. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. He's challenging. He's holy. He's mighty. He'll change your life for the better. But he will make you feel uncomfortable at times. But if you're ready to follow Jesus as he is, if you're ready to come to him with faith, with confession, with repentance, you come to be baptized into him, he will wash your sins away, he will forgive you, 
And he will absolutely love you. He already does love you. He will love you in the way that he walks with you for the rest of your life. What a beautiful and wonderful thing that is. If you're ready to come to Jesus Christ, we invite you on his behalf to come to him today. Maybe you need to come back to him today because your life has not been shaped by Jesus as it should have been. We invite you to come home to him today. Let's stand and let's sing. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood.